earlier, uh, but we have received uh, some qu question about when we might go mask optional, and so we put it to the leadership and they uh, and unanimously approved it, uh, and so we will begin next Sunday uh, mask optional in worship. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. And then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, ran, put his arms around him, and kissed him. And then the father said to him, excuse me, uh, then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing and called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And then he became angry 
and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, this, this son of yours, came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. As a kid growing up in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, I learned early on that racism was a grievous injustice. We learned that black people suffered for hundreds of years in a system designed to use their labor and their bodies to make a few white people rich. Now, after the end of the Civil War, the system of enslaving people toppled. White people thought up new ways to use black labor and black bodies to make and to maintain wealth. Jim Crow laws emerged, devised to keep wealth and power in a few hands and black people in their place. Black people were terrorized, bullied, intimidated. I saw the grainy videos of fire hoses and police dogs. I saw the truncheons, the axe handles. I saw the harassment, the lunch counters, and the protest marches. We were kids, but I mean, we heard whispers all around the edges, conversation about riots and assassinations. We caught glimpses of men wearing sheets and burning crosses in black and white photos. We learned about Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. By the time I started thinking about these sorts of things in earnest, people around me felt like we'd maybe passed through some troubled waters. Nobody said it out, too, out loud, uh, lest we jinx the progress we'd made, but there was some optimism that the big problems of racism had more or less been conquered. Now, my people were not activists. We didn't march, we didn't protest, we didn't sit in or boycott. But our folks forbade us from using certain racist words, which only bigots and vulgar people used. I mean, I could get in as much trouble for using the N-word as for any swear word. I learned early on that all people were created equal and that at least theoretically, we were required to treat everyone that way. Now, over the years, being identified as a racist increasingly became shameful. The overt kinds of racism taken for granted before the civil rights movement in many places had become more socially acceptable, uh, excuse me, unacceptable, 
And when we elected Barack Obama, many cultural observers said that we'd finally defeated racism, right? Remember that? We now live in a post-racial society, the thinking went, where racism is so offensive that no enlightened person can hold their head up in public if they have these sort of bigoted views. Now, whether you bought the idea that we'd finally overcome our racist past, it certainly felt like we'd at least turned a corner in the fight. Being a racist was one of the worst things you could say about a person. People seemed more afraid of being called racist than actually being racist, though it turns out. Having charges of racism made against you could bring down the wrath of society on your head. I mean, you could lose your job over it. But a few years back, we, we witnessed the reemergence of white nationalism and its tawdry parent, white supremacy. Our political life shifted profoundly. Being called a racist, it still brings a certain cultural stain, but people whose racism had receded into the shadows began to feel emboldened to let it leak out in public once again. Now, the use of dog whistles, which had been sort of the, the passive-aggressive way of keeping racism alive, increased. Phrases like inner-city crime or black-on-black -black violence or law and order became coded ways of disparaging black people, of telling us who we needed to respect and who we need not. And some of our politicians became virtuosos at playing that dog whistle. The people who lived in the shadows with their racism finally felt comfortable coming back out into the open to try their newfound freedom in public from Charlottesville to Louisville to Minneapolis. Overt racism sort of came rushing back, signifying that we hadn't got nearly as far around the corner as maybe we thought we had. Even the phrase black lives matter, the truth of which should be obvious, right, to everybody, has become incendiary to those convinced that black lives shouldn't matter nearly as much as the feelings of white grievance. I mean, we've noticed it, all of us have, I suppose. Alas, I'm not telling you anything new. We bump into it all the time in our current world, but what I find so appalling and therefore so dispiriting about the reemergence of public racism is the loss of the sense of shame about it. For a time, anyway, it appeared as though uh, we'd found racism shameful enough that people fought hard to keep their bigotry a well-guarded secret. <laughs> Anymore, though, racists wear their shame and their Confederate flags with pride. Now, one of the most mo notable developments in our recent politics from my perspective, is the death of shamelessness, right? I mean, some people care very little about the public exposure of their cruelty and hypocrisy. Getting caught being a racist seems to matter very little to some of our neighbors, but getting called a racist can still make racists spit, spit nails. So I guess there's still a capacity to feel some shame, but it's not nearly as much as I think is probably called for. Now, because of the declining fear of shame in our culture, interpreting the Bible accurately has become more difficult for us. 
The ancient Near East operated in what anthropologists and sociologists called an honor-shame-based culture. Now, in an honor-shame-based society, people accrue social capital through the reputation of their family and their family name. Any action that disgraces the family is something that one should avoid at all costs. In many cases, death is preferable to dishonor. Now, some Asian and Middle Eastern cultures still operate with this within this kind of world. And although widely condemned, one of the most extreme forms of this kind of culture manifests itself in that what feels like medieval uh, practice of honor killings, right? It still happens in some societies. And perhaps you've heard of them. It's, it's, a, it's a murder committed against an individual by somebody who is wanting desperately to avoid dishonor. The victims of these honor killings are usually women who've been charged with some sexual indiscretion. But the thinking behind the whole practice is that a person has disgraced their family's reputation. And to wipe out that disgrace, a gesture must be made to restore honor. In these cultures, you, you, you climb the cultural ladder by accruing honor among those in your culture. On the other hand, suffering humiliation drops you down a few pegs. Now, you, you may be asking yourself, why all this stuff just to talk about the prodigal son? Well, it's a good question. But you see, all this stuff is necessary to understand the story of the prodigal son because the problem of humiliation sits at the heart of this story. Oh, what do I mean? Well, the story begins with a colossal insult. Now, again, you may be thinking to yourself, insult? I'm still not following you, professor. Okay, so what's the first thing that happens in this story? Well, the younger son comes to his father and asks for his half of the inheritance. Like, right now, please, can I have it? What? That's, that's it. Now, in your mind, you might be wondering, well, why is that such an insult? Well, because to receive an inheritance, presumably, somebody is meant to have died. In an honor-shame-based culture, the younger son is essentially saying, hey, Pop, <clears throat> I'd like my share of the bequest right now. If it's all the same to you, and if you wouldn't mind terribly, drop dead so that I can ha get what's coming to me. So, I mean, you can understand why this might be interpreted as an insult, right? How in an honor-shame-based culture, the son has just humiliated his father. But the father, instead of sending Junior to his room, further humiliates himself. And he goes to the bank, withdraws a suitcase load full of cash, and brings it back to his ungrateful son. And so the ingrate younger son takes his money, heads off to the distant land where he dishonors himself and is 
family more by blowing the whole inheritance on the kind of thing that young men have always blown money on, the fast life. Unfortunately for the boy, when all the money's gone, he can't really figure out how to support himself anymore, and so he takes a job tending pigs. And just as a brief side note, one of the essential elements of storytelling is the maxim, show, don't tell. Have you ever heard that? Don't tell us how somebody feels, show us. Well, Luke dives into this whole thing with both feet. He doesn't tell us. He demonstrates that the younger son's fall from grace by throwing him in a pig pen, literally. Now, many of them, former Jews, even coming contact, in contact with pigs was a big no-no, right, to Luke's readers. The younger son not only works with pigs, but he's so hungry that he realizes even the pigs are eating better than he is. So in placing the boy in a pig pen, Luke has just shown us the very bottom rung of the ladder in Jewish culture, one that is structured by honor and shame. The kid's in such a bad place that he makes a bold move to scramble up a few pegs by going back home and asking his dad to make him one of his servants. While the younger son is still a long way off, Luke tells us, the waiting father sees him coming down the road and runs to embrace him. Now see, this is not the way things are done. Yet again, the father dishonors himself instead of waiting for an apology, which he is clearly due, instead of teaching the boy a lesson, instead of doing what a father's supposed to do in that culture, the father debases himself by throwing his good-for-nothing offspring a party. A party for crying out loud. Because of all the shame he's brought on his family, Junior should be grateful to get a spare cot and a bologna sandwich. But no, he gets a party with the fatted calf that dad's been saving for a special occasion. The older brother is the only person in the story who seems to get how things are supposed to go. He completely understands the dishonor his father and his brother have brought on the family's name, and he is furious. The older brother refuses to go inside to this little shindig that dad's throwing for his insufferable younger brother. He figures that welcoming his brother back without teaching him a lesson is a matter of dishonor. Not, 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 not to mention that throwing a party only encourages more selfishness and dishonorable behavior. I mean, why should he go in, right? I, he's been steady Eddie all these years. He did what he's supposed to do. He didn't whine about it. Didn't go to daddy to get his share of the inheritance. Just did his job, kept his nose clean. Now his father's going to give his brat of a younger brother a party like nothing happened? Yeah, I don't think so. The older brother's not going anywhere near that party. And so what does the long-suffering father do? He leaves the party 
He heads out to find his older son, the one that's sitting outside pouting. And he tells him, everything that I have is yours. Now, we don't know whether or not the elder son eventually gives in and, 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 and finally goes inside the party because the text doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that not attending a party thrown by his dad is itself another way of dishonoring the family. See, Jesus has really messed up this story. Which, at least in its beginning, is a common ancient Near Eastern morality tale. My parents told this story to show their children that selfishness gets you thrown with the, in with the pigs while being loyal and obedient gives you a party. <coughs> and it's supposed to be told in such a way as to encourage children to grow up and be responsible, act like the reliable older brother, not the pain in the neck in great younger brother. But you see, Jesus completely ruins the original story by turning everything on its head. I mean, what's the, story, the moral of the story now? Being dependable is for suckers? Act like a jerk and you'll get paid. So what's Jesus trying to accomplish here? Well, for one thing, Jesus draws us all into this story because it's easy to look at either son and think, yeah, I mean, this guy's a real schmuck. Both of them are. Both of them are. They're willing to disgrace the family in the pursuit of their own selfish agenda. And typically when we read this story, we <clears throat> I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that we tend to read ourselves into one of the two roles. Prodigal or sanctimonious humbug. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? I mean, I would venture that most of us read ourselves into the more daring, slightly rakish role of the younger brother. I mean, somehow that seems more romantic, doesn't it? Classic sort of riches to rags story. When I was younger, I sowed my wild oats, did some things I'll never tell my kids about. But now I've come to my senses. See, most of us don't feel good about reading ourselves into the role of the older brother, though, do we? Now, who voluntarily casts themselves in their own drama as the uptight bellyacher who's con always convinced that they're getting shafted? But if we're honest with ourselves, we know deep down that we often occupy both roles in the story, don't we? The point is not to help us decide which is better. Should we be like the younger brother? Should we be like the older brother? In fact, the story's not about us at all. We find out that if the father in this story is a stand-in for God, well, then God's not keeping score like everybody else. In a culture where shame lessened everyone's respect for you, God demonstrated God's willingness to dive face-first into, into the slop to show us how much we're loved. <clears throat> but God's also willing to risk humiliation to find the entitled older brother 
and listen to his whining about how, after all he's done, he's never got so much as a case of beer and a cheese ball for a party with his friends. I mean, think about it. God embraces humiliation to preserve a relationship both with the irresponsible brat and the entitled fuss budget. <coughs> Which is better? Being the younger brother or the older brother? Whom does God love more? The reckless scapegrace or the uptight bean counter? The answer, at least according to this parable, is that God loves both of them. God loves both of them and more besides. God's not picky. <laughs> I'm not sure about you, but that sounds like good news to me. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.